Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Last week, we took the show on the road and taped a live discussion in Bisbee about the present and future health of the San Pedro River. Today, we bring you those conversations. The San Pedro River flows north from Mexico into southern Arizona, creating a rich and valuable riparian corridor to support many animals, including mammals like jaguar and millions of migrating birds. The river and its connected groundwater flows also support the nearby city of Sierra Vista and Fort Huachuca, plus other towns including Bisbee, Tombstone, and Huachuca City. The San Pedro is the last large free-flowing river in southern Arizona that, at least in part, flows year-round. But as water demands increase and the climate becomes hotter and drier, the river is increasingly at risk of drying up. We invited a panel of guests to join us at the Bisbee Royale Theater in front of a live audience. Our first panel featured Holly Richter, Arizona Water Projects Director for the Nature Conservancy, and Michael Bogan, an aquatic ecologist and professor at the U of A. Holly, can you give us a brief overview of the Nature Conservancy's work here in the San Pedro area? The Conservancy's been very active in the San Pedro watershed since the 1980s. And what brought us here was really the stunning biodiversity that's here. The, the fact that this is a place where, where all these different larger regions kind of collide. I mean, we have the Sonoran Desert colliding with the Chihuahuan Desert, and we have the Sierra Madre coming up from the south with some of the Rocky Mountain species from the north. All colliding here was just a real magnet for conservation and the protection of those species by the Nature Conservancy. Michael, you've worked on the San Pedro in the past and other uh, river systems. What characteristics of the San Pedro make it unique? Well, the fact that the San Pedro still has water in it um, definitely makes it unique. So we, uh, we study aquatic ecology, we study the species that need water and live in the water year round, and it gets harder and harder each year to find places um, that support aquatic species. So the San Pedro, the fact that it flows year round, it's natural flow and there are no dams or large diversion structures on it, uh, make it a really unique system to study from an aquatic ecology standpoint. For people who have not been lucky enough to come down and see the San Pedro, you say it flows year-round. Maybe people think of the Colorado running through the Grand Canyon. What's the San Pedro look like? It's a much smaller system than people might be accustomed to. Uh, during the dry season, you can basically jump across portions of the San Pedro, and it's also spatially interrupted. So we think of rivers as, as kind of continuously flowing from top to bottom. But in the San Pedro, in the dry season, it'll break up and there'll be dry segments and wet segments that are flowing and then dry segments again. So during the dry season, it's, it's small and it's fragmented, but it's the only water around, so it's really important. And then of course, as, as um, folks know, we have the monsoon season, which will dramatically increase the flows and turn it into a river closer to the size of the Mississippi River. <laughs> <laughs> And I would just add as a riparian ecologist that around that wonderful aquatic system is this amazing riparian forest and floodplain. It's just a, it's a migratory corridor that really is, as I mentioned, it's of, of hemispheric importance because it allows species to move from Central and South America up to North America. Three million birds every year use it to move along their, their um, annual migration path. And it's that terrestrial forest, which can be cottonwood willow in some places, and, and mesquite bosque in others, and 
floodplain grasslands and other areas, and these wetlands, that southwestern wetlands that we call Cienegas. It's one of the richest uh, land mammal assemblages in North America, 80 species of mammals. And Michael, just so we know what's under the water, how does the San Pedro as a river uh, do for aquatic animals? Right, so the San Pedro has a, has a pretty rich assemblage of aquatic animals. A lot of what we study is down at the base of the food chain, the aquatic invertebrates and the aquatic insects. Um, and so there's about 250 species that we know of from the San Pedro. There's a lot more than that because unlike the mammals which are well studied, uh, aquatic insects, there's a lot of species that haven't been described yet. So it's almost certain there's new and undescribed species that are living in the San Pedro. Those aquatic insects uh, spend most of their lives underwater, but then they have a short stage where they come out into the terrestrial environment on land and fly around and look for mates and lay their eggs back in the water. And it's really that emergence from the water that draws in and feeds a lot of the um, birds and riparian mammals and things that we've been talking about. Let's get a little bit uh, into the nitty gritty here. Holly, the Cochise Conservation and Recharge Network. It's something if you start reading about the San Pedro, you hear about, what is it? It's a collaborative effort here locally to enhance the water supply for both local communities as well as the flowing river. And really, this is almost a larger story that started probably 20 years ago in trying to really balance those needs between people and nature with, with developing the science and the tools to figure out how to do that well. And one of the things that we started as kind of a, a collaborative effort here was the development of predictive models, hydrologic models, that can tell us where are the worst places to pump, where are the best places to recharge the aquifer and increase that underground groundwater that supports the flows in the river. And, and that includes aquifer recharge projects, which is what the CCRN, or the, the Cochise Conservation and Recharge Network, really is. When it comes to aquifer recharge projects like this, Wells can be dug deeper, but how does recharging the aquifer help the river? Great question. So yes, our wells can go deeper, but uh, the, the wonderful riparian vegetation that creates that lush habitat, their roots can only go so deep. And so what that really means is that our groundwater has to be very shallow near the river to sustain that lush forest and all those habitats. And the only way that that is going to happen, particularly through the really long, dry, hot periods of the year when that habitat needs water the most, is if we can keep that groundwater at a stable level. And every gallon of water that we pump is one gallon of water that would eventually go to do that very thing. So how do we balance the water that we pump uh, with what, what that whole ecosystem needs? And it's by replenishing the aquifer through recharge projects, as well as minimizing the amount that we pump. Michael, let me ask you, what happens when a river like the San Pedro starts to lose flow because of, be it climate change or the aquifer dropping? It's a really interesting question. We've, we've looked a lot at how species respond, aquatic species respond to the loss of water. And looking across the whole San Pedro Basin, if a river historically would dry up naturally, was part of its, its natural flow regime, then the species we find there have adaptations for surviving that. So they might have a dormant stage where they can survive in the dry sediment for multiple months, and then when the wa water comes back, they pop back to life, they can do fine with it. In a system like the San Pedro, where it naturally and historically had year-round flow, then those species essentially don't have any adaptations for surviving drying. And so when we see formerly perennial streams dry up, we tend to see a pretty big loss in the number of species that it support. The biodiversity goes down quite a bit.
you said in the summer especially, um, before the monsoon comes in, San Pedro can be very narrow, but then it can get very wide. What's the minimum that it needs to, to maintain uh, the, the wildlife and the, the system? Right, so I mean, the ideal minimum would be the historical minimum, what it's had before we started taking water out of the system, right? The, the reality is, is that out of the 250 species of aquatic invertebrates that we find there, each one of them has a different need. Right? And so as we start to draw down the water, we're going to lose the most sensitive ones first. They're going to start to disappear. They need essentially the full amount of water during the dry season. There are you know, plenty of other species that are just fine if there's pools left and there's not flow. But it may be that the species we lose are the ones that the birds and the bats prefer to eat. So that's why we, we you know, really the, the goal is to keep as many of the species in the river that we possibly can, because we don't know all of those connections in that tangled web between the river and the riparian area. So what's the biggest threat to the San Pedro right now? The, well, I'll, I'll, I knew I'd stump him eventually. I'll dive in on that. Um, I, I think undeniably it's this stressful base flow pre-monsoon season and trying to sustain those low flows. And that's because that's when it's most groundwater dependent. And that's because we depend on the same groundwater as those low flows. And frankly, what's so interesting about that is I think a lot of people worry about kind of the future growth of, of this area and the water use, how that might diminish groundwater. But frankly, it's the historic use of the groundwater that still hasn't even, those implications haven't hit the river yet and are still to come. So what I worry about at night the most is when those uh, kind of lagged responses of the groundwater system from pumping since 1940 actually reach the river, our very best predictive models tell us that that's going to have a significant impact, even if we didn't pump one more drop of water on the health of the San Pedro River. Yeah, and I think I, I kind of panic about two things, which is first what, what Holly just explained, and then second, the loss or the reduction of winter rainfall mm -hmm. and higher temperatures during the winter. And so we're seeing these, uh, this loss of flow in the river during that, that yeah. season, that kind of critical season, because it's those winter rainfalls, that winter flow, that kind of helps get us through that dry season, through the bump and into the next monsoon season when the high flows come through again. So it's essentially the, the climate change, the yeah. one-two punch of pumping and climate change. Last question for both of you. Looking ahead in your, in your crystal balls, what's the future of the San Pedro and the entire area as a result? It's great. It's got to be. <laughs> I don't think there's a choice there. I mean, this is an irreplaceable ecosystem. And I think at some levels, you know, there's a lot of controversy. There's not enough resources to do all we want as soon as we want. There's still a lot of questions with the science. I could name all kinds of challenges. But I also think that we've done some pretty unprecedented things here to step up to those challenges. And I don't think we're done yet, but I think we're on a path. And I think we have to believe that we can do this. Yeah, and I think the, the scale of the San Pedro really allows for some conversations that don't happen in other places. When we think about the challenges in a system like the Colorado River, it's so massive. There are so many players over such a large area that you really can't have the kind of meaningful dialogues and conversations that move things forward and move us towards a more sustainable future, very easily at least. Whereas in the San Pedro, you can get 
the county, you can get the ranchers, you can get the developers, you can get the federal land managers, you can get the biologists, and we can all actually fit in a room together. And, and we fight and we have conversations, but we can make some progress towards um, some vision of a future where we still have a river. There's no other choice. That was Holly Richter with the Nature Conservancy and Michael Bogan, an aquatic ecologist. You're listening to a special episode of The Buzz focused on the San Pedro River, taped in front of a live audience at the Bisbee Royale Theater. Our second panel featured Scott Feldhausen, Gila District Manager for the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, the agency that oversees the San Pedro Riparian National Conservation Area. Sarah Ransom, an attorney who handles water issues for Cochise County, and Michael Gregory, a local grassroots San Pedro River advocate. You were involved in getting the San Pedro uh, River National Conservation Area established back in 1988. Uh, you've been at this for a while. Briefly explain how you got the designation and what it means and why you wanted to get that designation. Well, actually the campaign that we started started quite a bit before 88. It started in the 70s. Uh, several of us who lived in the area here looked at the river, noticed that the Fort Pachuca and the cities around it, uh, especially Sierra Vista, were growing very rapidly. And that it was already known scientifically that there was a problem with the groundwater underneath that area, that the groundwater was being taken out faster than it was going back in. That resulted, as we now know, in what we call a cone of depression, which has been expanding ever since then. It's still expanding. We decided that we had to do something to save the river. So Saving the San Pedro became a campaign amongst local citizens and several national environmental groups. Uh, we originally had wanted to start a campaign to create it as a game refuge under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, that turned out not to be financially feasible. It turns out that BLM said they did have the money. And so the state manager of the BLM uh, sat down with some of us, including Bruce Babbitt, who was governor then, and said, I have a plan that we can turn this into a national conservation area. That would be very different from most BLM-controlled lands. Most BLM-controlled lands were controlled by a law that demands what they called multiple use. The national conservation area does not require that. It allows you to say, no, we're not going to have this, we're not going to have that, we're here to preserve, to protect. And so that's what we ended up with. The Sprinka, as we call it, the San Pedro Riparian National Conservation Area, was one piece of the puzzle. We never knew, never thought that was going to save the river. It was going to do a lot, and it has done a lot. But the river, the Kona Depression, is still getting bigger. We have not solved the problem. Scott, let me turn to you. Uh, let's fast forward from 1988 to last month. Your agency, your the district, put out a new management plan that is open for, I believe it's officially called protest, we'll call it final comment, uh, through the 29th of this month. That document's supposed to guide land management in the, the Sprinka for the next 15 to 20 years. What would change under this plan as opposed to the way it has been managed since the 80s? The biggest change is are, as Michael said, you know, the population growth you know, that it continue to grow around the area. Um, we talked a lot about the change in the ecology of that landscape. Um, and we talked, we haven't talked really about what the public has wanted. You know, it was set aside for conservation. 
and public demands about what that conservation looked like have changed since then, I think, a little bit. Right now, we're trying to set a path for what that future should look like as far as laying out the objectives for managing it into the future. Um, when it was created, Congress gave us some pretty strict guidance, quite different, as Michael said, than our normal public domain lands. Unfortunately, we never really took that next step and worked with the public to say, what does that really look like? Here we are 30 years later trying to do that. And uh, I liken it in many ways to trying to thread a cable through a sewing needle. The public demand um, for the use out there is quite varied. You know, at the public meetings we held, we had great attendance. You'll see, as you see, there's a lot of passion about this landscape. And as a public land manager, I highly value that. Um, having spent my career doing public land management, it scares me to death when people ask the question, what is the value of our public lands? So it's, it's a big challenge. There is a lot of perspectives on what conservation looks like and what the uses should be out there. We did the public meetings, we heard everything from, we should graze it like you said you were going to, to there should be no grazing. We should close every road so we can protect it, too. We should be able to drive out there and see what we're conserving. And so our plan basically tries to assimilate that and figure out how to best implement what Congress told us to do, looking at what the conditions are today. How do you balance all of, all of those competing ideas and needs? So we've listened to the scientists. We listened to the public. We tried to do our best to figure out how to interpret what Congress really asked for versus what the public is asking for today and still meet that long-term need. I know that we didn't make everybody happy, but I feel pretty good that we did a good job of at least listening to the community about what they were asking for out there. Michael, you were there at the beginning. Everybody knows plans like this don't make everybody happy. From your standpoint, is the plan that's been put forward awful, acceptable, not bad, the greatest thing ever? Do I have to play to my public? <laughs> no, no you, can, no, you can answer honestly. <laughs> no, as Scott knows, I'm not at all happy with the plan. Uh, I think that the, uh, what I call the Trump BLM has a very different notion about what a national conservation area is. The concept of grazing on the Sprinka, I think, is totally against what we wrote into the legislation. There are other problems that, uh, that are in there. It looks to me like what is going on in the current plan is what's going on with Department of Interior properties all over the country. There has been a directive come down from Washington saying you will use these lands to the maximum extent possible. And that to me is directly contrary to the legislation. The legislation said not you will use, but you will protect. And that's very different. Sarah, we haven't come to you on this yet, but what's the county's role in all of this? I am coming as a county employee. I'm not speaking for the county. I'm, I'm you know, th these are based upon my experiences. But I think that the BLM did a very good job of listening to the community. And I do think that the local voices um, have been heard. And what the resource management plan provides is a broad array and a suite of options so that we can move forward work together cooperatively, continue communicating and progressing on the positive trajectory that we've already put in place. And, um, we are talking about population growth and demand. Well, population growth in recent years has actually stalled in the Cochise County area and the Sierra Vista subwatershed. We aren't growing. The economic meltdown really hit this area and we are projected not to grow like Tucson or like Phoenix. Out into the future, a 0.8% population growth is what we are modeling. 
And so while we're in this position where we're not dealing with rapid growth, we have been able to put a lot of conservation measures in place. Last year, the Arizona Supreme Court made a decision that allowed a 7,000 home uh, development called Tribute to go forward saying there was a 100-year water supply. A lot of people argue with that. One of the plaintiffs in that case was the BLM. How do you balance that Tribute decision, which was very controversial, with the new plan that the BLM has put forward for the San Pedro? That's a, a challenge. Um, from our perspective, the court made a decision, and we have to adhere with it. Um, the court will make another decision at some point on the rest of the Gila River adjudication, uh, which includes the Federal Reserve water right for the San Pedro, and we will live with that, whatever it is. Um, our plan right now is sets objectives for what we believe the landscape, how it should look ecologically moving into the future. But our plan isn't set around the water rights. Our plan manages the resources on the Sprinka. When it comes to the amount of water that the BLM wants to see on the San Pedro, can you discuss that litigation? I know it's ongoing litigation, but can you discuss it a little bit just to fill the audience in? Uh, the basics of it are that when Congress enacted the legislation to create the Sprinka, they said we should have a water right su sufficient to sustain those resources. How we get that in the state of Arizona is through a water rights adjudication process that's been ongoing for 40 years, approximately. No end in sight. And we applied for the amount of water that scientists told us was necessary for the riparian ecology, the fish, the species, all that. And Sarah, now the county's got to balance that with things like tribute and other growth? No, in fact, the, the way the adjudication works is the judge will decide how much water BLM needs to fulfill the purposes of the reservation. The standard is minimal need for a federal reserved right because federal reserved rights really trump everyone around them. And so as, as far as what everyone around the Sprinka needs, the judge is not interested in that. Um, what is happening around the Sprinka may impact the amount of water in the river, so it's relevant what the community is doing to support the river. Um, and the community is doing an awful lot to support the river and has been thanks to the foresight of a lot of our scientists and officials for 20 plus years. This brings up what I think is a larger point. The main problem is we're taking out too much water. We have let too many people draw out too much water from that valley because both the state and the county have been run by a pro-growth ideology for decades. That policy has to stop. Certainly we are tasked with addressing the excesses of the past, but we do have a situation where agriculture resulted in very, very significant pumping up through the 40s and 50s, and that is still progressing towards the river. But water is a great unifier, and so we have, where in other places nobody's going to get into a room together, we have been able to get into a room together with federal agencies, state agencies, and local agencies, and talk about conservation for some time. And that has made an absolute impact on the way we function, the way we use water, and the state of our aquifer. Um, even as recently as 2017, the USGS is most recent uh, report on sustainable groundwater indicated that we're within the margin of error as far as our withdrawals. 
We are actively protecting the river with these recharge projects. And our modeling indicates that at these areas where we're putting these recharge projects in place, if they are successful and we're able to build them all, they will sustain flows out to the year 2105 at 2003 base flow levels. And that's not the only thing we want to do. The Colorado River Basin states, after a lot of discussions, we shall say, came up with a drought contingency plan that's run by the states. Michael, would you like to see that happen here to keep the state and the feds out of it, let the local, you know? Absolutely and... not. Okay. <laughs> okay. I spent many years after we started working on saving the San Pedro in one committee after another that was created here locally to prevent state management of the water. When the Groundwater Act was passed in 1980, some of us pushed for getting what they call an active management area in the Sierra Vista area. That was actively opposed by the development interests in the county, and I might say the county itself. I think we should go back and revisit that. That's still a possibility for bringing in some state controls on the San Pedro. There's another level of the state problem that I think needs to be addressed. Um, this goes back to the tribute plan that you were talking about. One of the big issues in that is that there is not a state law, but a state policy that basically says groundwater is not connected to surface water. Well, that's absurd. And almost everybody in the world knows that. We need to change that policy. Sarah, do you want to jump in last word on this? I agree with Mr. Gregory that obviously hydrological realities are not what legally our Arizona Supreme Court has elected to stick with. And so we, we function within this legal fiction that groundwater and surface water are not connected. And then we've got this uh, concept of subflow, which is surface water. And then we want to treat effluent differently. And, and we have a complicated legal metrics when it comes to water. That was Scott Feldhausen of the Bureau of Land Management, Cochise County Attorney Sarah Ransom, and grassroots San Pedro River advocate Michael Gregory. You've been listening to a special episode of The Buzz focused on the San Pedro River, taped in front of a live audience at the Bisbee Royale Theater. Find more information about some of the San Pedro subjects discussed today in the show notes, and you can hear an extended version of this conversation on our podcast feed. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show, thanks to AZPM production crew Denny Warders, Trey Diston, Matt Parkwardowski, and Bob Lindbergh. Special thanks to the Bisbee Royale Theater and Etta Krolovec with the Bisbee Science Lab. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, Andrea Kelly is the news director, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.